welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. Hi everyone, great to see you. Thank you. Please be seated. I leave for Perth early in the morning and uh, my eldest daughter and her family live there. They've planted a church in downtown Perth. Uh, replanted really uh, at Perth Modern and they live in Sibiaco and I'll meet my fourth grandbaby, little Liberty, for the first time. She was born in April and I know that there'll be a pitter patter of feet early in the morning when I, before I wake up, when they wake up, will be my wake up time and I'm so looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward to the fact that when I get back to LA, my second daughter will get married and uh, what she's asked which Meryl, my wife, has facilitated, is that uh, we've rented a big house up in the hills, and uh, Sunday night and Monday night before the wedding, the family are all going away. So my parents are coming from South Africa where I was born. Meryl's parents are coming in from South Africa, although she was born in Central Africa, and uh, uh, Stu's parents will be coming in. And um, one of the things that Dana's asked for is she said, Dad, can we have some time to look at the photo albums? Can we have some time just to look at the DVDs? And I can only imagine my little grandkids who would not have seen them before would run with pitter-patter of feet now to the video screen and uh, for little Shiloh with few words, she will jump with joy because she's a very visual child as she recognizes her mommy as a little girl when uh, her mommy was a shy, quiet little girl who cried the first time she had to perform publicly because she said to me, Dad, my tummy is all the butterflies, I can't do this. And I remember getting in front of her with my hands on either side of her little face and I said, Nas, I don't know if you'll understand what Daddy's about to say to you, girl, but if I agree tonight to let you off the hook, if I say to you tonight, you don't have to sing because your tummy's feeling funny, then the rest of your life, every time your tummy feels funny, you will run away. So I want you to get up there, girl, with these big brown eyes. I want you to get up there and I want you to sing with all of your heart. And she looked at me and tears were running down her face and she nodded and she sang exquisitely that night. And we will spend time as a family just looking through the albums and looking through the videos and just savoring the joy and wonder of a multi-generational family. The scriptures are exactly the same. The amazing thing about the gospels, for those of you who are newer to the scriptures, is that no one story of Jesus quite captured who he was, what he did, and what was ultimately achieved. And so God was incredibly wise. God took Matthew and God got a book to be written about the story of Jesus, starting right as I've done in the photo album. The first chapter is just Jesus' photo album. And I think the young, young nephew who would be looking at the DVD as we read the text will be captivated by the warrior King David who, who walked so majestically in his armor and his weapons. The, 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 the little boy who had the slingshot to the warrior who had all of his armor. And to Rahab the prostitute as the little niece who's pushed things a little too far sexually, peeps out the corner of her eye and see God's redemptive story through Rahab. And suddenly there's a smile that creases her face because if God can do it for Rahab, in Jesus' story, maybe God can do it for her too. 
And it's a great picture Matthew, Matthew gives us of the fulfillment of prophecy and Scripture and of uh, Israel himself. And then, and then God, and I'm going to come back to the second one, there's Luke, the only Gentile who writes the God story who never met Jesus. But he's a doctor. And so he does his research and spent about three years in the Galilean area interviewing those who knew him and writes a most eloquent description of this Jesus story and the miracles. And as his scientific gaze browsed on interviewed witnesses of miracles, he recorded them with, with, with fine new detail because he wanted people to understand that what he as a scientist was writing, as an historian was writing, was not just a passing thought phase or myth. It was factual. It was actual. It was real. And there are eyewitnesses to verify it. And he writes of this Jesus who came born into a tiny little Jewish family with a gospel for the whole world. My brother-in-law, when he came to faith, he's an ophthalmologist, an eye surgeon, and he just immersed himself in Luke's writings because as a doctor to a doctor, he found a common story that soaked his heart with Jesus. And then John, the one who hugged Jesus, who was on Jesus' chest, who was intimate with Jesus, wanted so desperately to write, not a sequential account of a Jesus story, but it's almost as if you, the reader, are taken on a journey and he gives you these little Kodak moments and he says, this is the man, Jesus. This is the man, Jesus. Do you see? This is the man, Jesus, with Lazarus. And he wept as his friend was dead in the tomb. And this is the man, Jesus, I so want you to deeply understand. So he's not preoccupied with history nor science. He's preoccupied with a friend. And then Mark. Great 16 chapters. Well, who's Mark? It seems like he is a man who ran away from Jesus twice. It seems like on two occasions, one stripped naked, the second time escaping away from the Jesus story, desperate to get away, and God in his kindness says, I want you to write one of the stories. Can you imagine? It was like Edison, apparently the story goes that when they made the first light bulb, he was given to a young attendant to take it into the storeroom, and the attendant tripped. And the first globe, light bulb, that had taken months to make lay shattered on the floor and they started all over again. And the same thing happened as they built it. Edison, with the completed light bulb, looked to the same young man and said, come put it in the storeroom for me. And Jesus looks at a man who had run away from him twice. And then he, he does better. He says, I want you to write Peter's account. Peter, who denied Jesus three times. Three denials, two running aways, a 16-chapter book. Glorious. Don't you love the redemptive heart of God? We just read the Bible as if there's no story behind the story. Every story has a story behind the story. And so whenever I go to Mark, I'm so stirred by the fact that Jesus said, would you put this light bulb away one more time? He is enamored, this glorious Savior of ours, no matter how many times we've run away, no matter how many times we've denied him, he calls us, he beckons us again, and he says, go and tell my story. Now, what's interesting about Mark's account is 16 short chapters, each story brief. This is a guy who's got, like Tony, he's like got attention deficit. You know what I mean? Like he can't concentrate for long. 
It's like ta 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 ta. He's just, every story is a staccato moment. He's like, he's on uppers. He's just like riding down and he, he's got to go, I've got to get to the next story. Let's write this one briefly. See, I love it when you just peep behind the curtain and it just all makes sense to you. And so we're going to go to one of those stories. So would you open your Bibles, please, to Mark's gospel. Now, if you're not that acquainted with the scriptures, that's fine. If you kind of open it randomly, you probably need to turn right because we normally kind of land in Isaiah or Jeremiah, one of those fancy prophets. But you keep going right until you find Mark. The second chapter, and we're gonna read. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Don't you love that? Jesus had a house. He wasn't a hippie, peace. He didn't just have one of those convertible combi VW things, just like grooving around, having a few babes and a few bros just hanging out like, what's up? He had a spot, he had his own place, he got some really cool furniture and they filled it out and it was a really cool place that he hung out with and looked forward to getting back to. And many were gathered together so there was no more room, not even in the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes who were sitting there questioned in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why, are you, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, Pick up your bed, go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. I love the bookends of this text. It starts off with Jesus in a home. It ends up with people absolutely amazed saying, we've never seen anything like this. One of the most remarkable gifts we can give to the Lord and to a community is the availability of our home. This is not part of my message. I just want to frame the story, but I want us to hear the story. In an ever-increasingly alienated, isolated world where men and women live such lonely lives, disconnected from people's stories, you may say to Tony, Tony, I don't really know what I have to give. I mean, I, I, I serve at the cafe and, and, and I help a little bit here and there. But I want to say to you, God is looking for more and more doors of open homes and open hearts where others can come and share a dining room table moment. It may or may not be a formal gathering. It may or may not be something official and organized and announced. But I tell you, it is one of the, lone, one of the, the, the most sought-after places is the dining room table. Do you know that? I cannot tell you how many people have said to me, particularly young people, Chris, can we just come and sit at your dining room table? 
We don't want you to invite us. We don't want to be guests. We, don't, we just want to sit at your table because we just don't know what a family feels like with a dad and mom and kids who do life together. The home is one of the prized moments, and I'm sure Jesus' humanity must have breathed. He'd been preaching his heart out in Capernaum. He has, he's come home. He's putting his, he's, he's, he's like Tony. He gets into his trackies, into his uh, whatever Adidas stuff, and he just wants to put his feet up now, and, and the word in the town is his home. And he's just chilling out, getting a meal together, a protein shake and oatmeal or chicken and vegetables and rice, and uh, there's a knock at the door. There's something extraordinary about a home opened. I was preaching in Africa, in, 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 uh, in the rural parts of Africa, and uh, finished the morning message. We were down in one of the homes in the township, and uh, sitting, we were having lunch together, and I noticed out the corner of my eye, someone walked in through the door and sat down on the couch. Now, when I use language like that, it's not as sophisticated as you are hearing. After we'd finished eating, everyone went home. I turned to my friend, Lucas Chalke. I said, Lucas, who was that man who walked in and sat down and your wife, Cynthia, fed him? And he looked at me with true African quiz and he said, I have no idea. I said, Lucas, help me here, dude. You, you, you are saying someone walked off the street, sat down on, in your lounge and, and, and your wife fed him. And, and I just felt the guy said, you poor whitey. Well, what, what, what don't you get about someone walking into my house and me feeding him and I don't even know him? Well, what, what part don't you get? Because the people came through Jesus's door into his house because they knew they would find something exquisite there. The passage ends with the people amazed saying, we've never seen anything like this. Now, when I've preached this, and I've preached this message a couple of times, I've used you. Yeah, Victory Church. After I hadn't been here for a few years, I walked in on a given Sunday a number of years ago, and the people at the door didn't know who we were. Greeted us with incredible warmth, not the Disney smile, hi. No, no, with authentic, hi, how are you? My name is so-and-so, I'd love to get you a coffee. Can you, no, well, hang on, I've got my wallet. No, no, I'll get you. They did not know that I was the speaker, that this was my wife and my son was with us. There was an authentic sense of love, and I don't know what I preached that day. I do not know what the songs were that day, but I knew that God was in the house because someone with authenticity and love met me at the door and took me for coffee. See, when we're authentically representing this God journey, we cannot create an over-dependence on the platform, the music, the lights, and the smoke machine. So much of what people gather when they leave is not what happens on the platform, it's what happens in the corridors outside there. But enough about that. What is the story in this text? Well, I'm sure you're gonna say to me, Chris, it's, I tell you what it is, I tell you, it's about faith. See? Especially if you've got a word of faith background. So Chris, it's about faith. And I say, okay. Well, well, what's the story? And you say, well, Chris, it's about these four robust guys sweating, perspiring, shirts ripped off, vests on, ripping a roof open, pulling back the corrugated iron, lowering. It's all about faith. And Jesus looked up and he said, your faith. Okay, yeah. I, I see that in the text. But let's keep scratching. You know, it's a bit like when you go to the lotto and you take the lottery and you've got to scratch. Don't act like you don't do it. Of course you do. You liars. Of course you do. You just don't want us to know because then you have to tithe. 
That's why. So you scratching away. You say, well, actually, at first reading, that's what that's about. But let's scratch a little bit more. So it is about healing. We'll get to that. But if we scratch a little bit more, it's about healing and forgiveness. Because that's what Jesus says to the man. Your sins are forgiven you. And then we scratch a little bit more. We realize, actually, this is the first encounter between the Jesus and the scribes. This is the first headbutt between the soon and coming king and those who were the authors of wisdom and the instigators of knowledge in Israel. Let's start there. I have to say I'm embarrassed because I did not really know who the scribes were historically. So I went and I did some research. And to my embarrassment furthermore, I actually found them to be vastly different from what I anticipated. Here's the story. In Babylon, during their captivity and exile, Israel were like many other smaller nations at the time and were swamped by the overwhelming Babylonian culture and empire. And every single other nation, small nation, that were brought into captivity was swamped into Babylonian culture. They became like the Babylonians, spoke like them, dressed like them, ate like them, postured like them, did money like them, except the Jews. But what prevented that from happening? Scribes. The fathers of the nation said, we need to find young men. Sorry, ladies, it was young men. Young men, and we need them to do three things. We need them to write, to set in order, and to account for every prophecy, every scripture, every hymn, every document that declares Israel's history. Now use your creative imagination with me for a moment, if you will. Picture 1940s. Picture a black and white movie from the period. Picture those who were in the intelligence community who were busy trying to protect all that was British. The room was darkened, there was a light bulb, they've got their typewriters going and documenting everything that is knowable about the civilization. These were radicals, they were rebels, they did what they did at the very fear of their, at the, their lives because they dared resist the Babylonian story by empowering knowledge in the saving, the writing, setting in order and keeping an account, the minutia. Remember, there weren't photostat machines, emails, faxes, there weren't any of those things. Everything had to be particularly documented and recorded. Every little accent point, every little period point or full stop, every comma had to be exactly so. There were very carefully chosen young radicals who gave their lives to documenting the scriptures, prophecies, hymns, and all things historical. And it's that reason why Israel maintained its distinctiveness. And when I read that, I was awestruck, and I had to ask myself, as I'm sure you are asking, well, what happened? Well, what happened is pretty soon the fringe and the radical and the extreme became recognized, became appreciated. And those who hung around in the alleyways and in dark corners in, in, in full kind of radical embrace of the story became more and more acceptable, became more and more centrist, became more and more loyal, became more and more recognized. And soon they shifted from the radical fringe to the lawyers, to the scribes, to the writers, to kings royalty, and the wealthy. And the ones that Jesus met were not the young radicals who were passionate about the scriptures and who were prepared to lose their life for it. 
They were those who were now used to the pomp and circumstance of places of privilege in society. What's our application? Twofold. One, I really feel, and I said this to Tony, I really feel a prophetic clarion call as I travel around the globe to call out the young radical, to call out, and I don't mean age, I mean those with a disposition who so value the scriptures, who so value prophecy, who so value hymns and psalms, who so value the documentation of our story that they will do it with all of their hearts, even at risk of life and limb. You see, folks, we are living in the same but more subtle moment of Babylonian influence. There is a dominant culture that's seeking to swamp us. There is a proverbial imperialistic Pac-Man that wants to eat away at the things that we hold dear, that we will fight for. It's more subtle, it's more nuanced, it's more sophisticated, but no less real than back in the day. And I feel like prophetically, God is calling out men and women who will stand up again and say, Chris, that's me. What you are describing is my passion and my job description, the heart that I carry, the scriptures are so dear to me. And I will, def- I will hold it, record it, write it, teach it, even if it costs me everything. I could take you through three or four major world issues right now that are slowly but subtly undermining the very fabric of our Christianity, and unless these young men and women rise to the fore and record, write, and set in order that which is authentically Christ-like and Christ-followers, we will become absorbed like the Babylonian so desperately wanted the Israelites to be. It will cost you. It will cost you time. It'll cost you energy. It will cost you reputation because you will not present a popular message that people want to hear, but the deeply felt, passionate message of the risen Christ and the implications to a world that despises him. And to you, I want to draw that out. To you, I want to suck that out so that you will become the men and women that the church globally so desperately needs. But there is the other part, and they are those scribes that Jesus met that were now living with the benefits, the profile, and the circumstance of public life. I'm 55. I came to Jesus in 1976, during the Jesus people. We had long hair. We did drive combis. We had jeans. We played acoustic guitars. But as I travel around the world, I'm astounded by how many of my peers have just subtly put their hands up and said, Chris, I've run my race. I've been hurt and bruised a few times. The church has never understood me. The church hasn't accepted or embraced me. My message was rejected. My personality destroyed. My sense of value undermined. I'm done. And to you, sir and ma'am, I appeal From the bottom of my heart, our race is not yet run. Those who are older like me, whose gray hairs and little goatees reflect a long story, sorely are needed in a fatherless world, in a motherless world, your role is not lessened, but heightened. And, and, And I have to ask you today, under God, that you repent. Because you are resisting the very mantle that God has put upon your life for safer, easier pastures. 
What happened to these scribes? They were in the room. What did they see? They saw what everyone else saw. They saw the roof ripped off. And that wasn't as dramatic as we evangelicals want to make it. It wasn't uncommon to roll the roof back. It was made of straw and so grasses and so on. So it was, it was common to roll it back and to, to, to kind of re-roof it. But, but it's, it's fun to preach it eloquently and get all dramatic. It's fun. But, but the roof was rolled back. And I don't know how the man was strapped up by his mates and lowered through the roof as the dust was everywhere. I'm sure it was rather dramatic. And I'm sure people were whispering with excitement, what is he going to do? What is he going to do? What's he going to do? And they saw what everyone else saw, but suddenly cynicism, suddenly been there, done that, Suddenly, he's not nearly as amazing as you think he is. And the young believer whose story gets presented, you sit there and say, ah, just wait till she's been around for a while. That same scribal attitude that destroyed them and infuriated Christ still reigns supreme in our churches today. I'm asking you to repent. I'm asking you. Mano e mano. I'm asking you. The church cannot be seeded by the cynic and the skeptic, the critic, who postures themselves with folded arms saying, hmm, as they look through the dust. I've seen that before. Not nearly as in, wait, wait till next week. Next week there'll be paralytics again. Wait. You're all just excited. Wait. And as much as God is calling forth the young scribes who will set in order right and account for every word, every prophecy, every thought, every idea, so too God is calling out those who are sitting with folded arms, disgusted and disdained by what God is authentically doing today. Please repent. Secondly, it's not just about Jesus and the scribes whom he so thoroughly offended. You know why he offended them, because it's the first time he actually said to them, face to face, I'm God. That's what he did. He didn't leave room for I'm a prophet. He didn't leave room for I'm a philosopher, thinker, ideas man. He said in their face, I forgive, I am God. He said, I forgive. They said, only God can forgive. He said, I forgive. He announced his divinity in a sublime moment. But this is also a text about forgiveness. I was sitting counseling. Meryl and I were counseling a young girl one day who'd been date raped. I have no idea. I had no idea what to say to her. A friend invited her out for a meal and a drink. When she started spinning woozily, aware that she'd been drugged, she could do nothing to stop what was coming her way. She sat, gorgeous Christian girl, a virgin up until that moment in time, and sat weeping as she said, Chris, I kept myself for another. What do I do now? The human soul, I suspect, is an incredibly soft and tender creation. God never created the soul to have a crust, to be hard in compartment and shape and form. God created the soul to always be tender, to be filled with love and peace and kindness and joy. 
And the problem is every time someone sins against us or we sin against ourselves, it's a bit like someone takes a little pinprick of poison, splashes it onto our soul, and unless we deal with it like bleach, it begins to burn away at the soul and crustiness forms around the soul and hardness that the soul was never meant to bear begins to settle into the heart until eventually the soul becomes dead and dry without value, without tenderness, without compassion, without love. And the problem is if the heart is left to its own devices to develop its own crustiness and harshness, eventually it can no longer cope with the anger and the resentment and it begins to leak into the body. And that's what happened to this young man. When his heart could no longer cope with his sin and the destruction that it brought or maybe the sins that others had committed against him, it began to leak into his body and soon his actual factual body was crumbling under the weight and turmoil of his own sinfulness. And they desperately wanted him to be healed thinking it's the prayer of healing that will resolve it. But the source was not sickness but sin. And of course, not every sickness is, starts in sin, but ladies and gentlemen, some finds its source in sin. And Jesus says, of course, I could have said, be healed. Of course, I could have. But in the discernment of the spirit-empowered life, he reads that this man's paralytic condition is authored by a soul that has not gained healing. My daughter said to me the other day, she said, Dad, she said, why have you and mom loved each other for so long, 33 years? And before I could think, I heard my mouth say, forgiveness. And she was quite startled, I think, being the romantic Jane Austen type that she is. I think she had hoped something far more elaborate and maybe a bit more sensual and maybe, uh, uh, I don't know, classic. Or, or, uh, and she said, well, what do you mean? And I kind of caught myself and I realized, you know, Miss D., I was amazed at when people got divorced after 25 years. Now, please hear me. I'm very tender to those of you who have marital crises, but maybe this can help. And I saw friends, decades of marriage, and suddenly it's all over. Not one event, not one crisis, not one kaboom, but when poison drips to a tender soul, crusts begin to form and hardness replaces softness. But the wonder of forgiveness is that it comes and washes all my sins away. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Can I let you into my world? I Skyped Meryl when I got home after the morning meeting. She'd had a long day. My boy had played a soccer tournament, two games. And there she sat. I could see she was tired. Long day, lots of things she'd done. And I looked and I was wildly in love with her. And I wanted to reach through the Skype and just kiss her and hold her. Why? No one has hurt me like Meryl. And no one has hurt her like me. 
But when we allow the great and wondrous healing power of sin forgiven, the soul begins to soften again with joy and kindness. I said to that young lady, I said, have you ever heard the word expiation? She looked at me through her tears and I said, expiation goes something like this. It's that ability that God gives us to receive God's forgiveness for the sins we've committed and the sins that others have committed against us. I cannot, I said to her, take away what he's taken from you, but I can give you the gift of forgiveness. Friends, while we were worshiping tonight, I'm, I'm not a prophet, but there are little moments where I feel things prophetically. I felt two things about this point. Number one, there are people here who have an inability to forgive themselves. Your soul is in danger. Say, Chris, God has forgiven me, but I cannot forgive myself. Please don't say that. Because it's tantamount to running to the cross where Jesus hung. And I know the big pictures of a cross out there. It wasn't like that. It wasn't this romantic picture of a cross high up on a hill that no one can reach. They hung them at eye level so that you could walk past and slap them and spit at them and hit them. And it's like walking up to Jesus and slapping him as he lay tortured and butchered on the cross and say, this death is not enough for my sin. It's a moment of reflective honesty to say, God, I'm so struggling to forgive myself. Can you forgive me and can you help me to forgive myself? And there is something exquisite when you and I posture ourselves before him and watch him forgive and watch him empower us to forgive ourselves. My mother's a remarkable woman. You've heard me tell the story, and I say it with reserve because my father's a wonderfully saved man today. But when I grew up, he was an alcoholic. And I remember going to her and saying, Mom, eventually desperate, years and years and years, I said, Mom, with my siblings, my older sisters in ministry, my brothers in ministry, I said, Mom, you're welcome to divorce dad if you, if you want. And she looked at me as if to say, Chris, what are you saying? What are you saying? This is the man God has given me. I watch them now. My dad turns 80 in January. My mom's 76. They'll be in LA for the wedding. I watch them sitting on the couch, hand in hand, because she believed in forgiveness more than I did. She never raises my dad's drinking. She would never let us speak ill of my dad, even in the most dastardly of years, because there's a revelation of healing and forgiveness that a charismatic line and an altar call will never take away. Jesus and the scribes calling to out the power of healing and forgiveness, and lastly, healing itself. It seems like, it seems like, just years of observation, gee, the Lord's tender here. It seems like there are different ways in which God heals in different times in different churches. I don't know how to explain it. I'm not sure if I have a theology for it. I've just observed 
God in his kindness really has one church that sees everyone healed and every kind of sickness healed. And there's a mystery. It's just an amazing thing. Meryl and I, for some reason, have seen barren woman's barren wombs healed. I don't know why. We don't pray differently. For some obscure reason, God seems to fill barren wombs. Not all the time. I was in London just, um, I guess, a year and a half ago, two years ago. Went and found this little American couple that were dying, trying to plant a church. It did eventually close. We'd never met before. So they were checking me out a little bit. You say you're American, but that accent don't say don't sound like that. So afterwards, we took them to a little pub, a uh, great pub. Apparently, Leo Tolstoy ate there. I just suddenly felt really important. My fish and chips sounded really sophisticated, you know. Now, how do you, so, so we're getting to know you. We're chatting a little bit, and um, she obviously feels my gray hair. She feels comfortable enough to say, actually, Chris, she said, we've been trying for five years to have a baby. So I said, do you mind if I tell you a story? My eldest daughter could not become pregnant. And so as a, little, as a family, we had a prayer and fasting time. And the Tuesday night we met together, and it was Mark and Nass, Meryl and I, and Dana. And we prayed over our two girls because there's some stuff in the family that complicated life. And I reached into my wallet after we'd finished praying, and I opened it, and I saw a $100 bill. And it was like God smiled at me. I took the $100 bill out, and I gave it to Mark and Ass. I said, can I have a date on me? The next afternoon, we got a call. Can we come around? There was Nass in the little cocktail number. There was Mark in a suit, his red hair, up shining and straight. She eloquent, eloquent, and that night, my grandbaby cost me 100 bucks. So I tell her the story. I said, can I pray for you? Now, when you pray for someone in a pub, there isn't time to say E minor, please. Oh, the glory. Oh, you know, there isn't just time for that. It's kind of, uh, Father, please heal another chips and a pint, please. I mean, it's like that, you know. <laughs> so I said to Nola, who was the pastor's wife, Sean and Nola with us, I said, Nola, just put your hand on her tummy. And I just prayed a very simple prayer. I said, Lord, you hear the cry of this woman's heart. Would you fill her barren womb? Four months later, I got an email saying, we're pregnant. I was working with a young church planter, and we had a leaders meeting in their home, more like a core group meeting. And he turned, Phil turned to me, and he said to me, Chris, would you mind praying for two couples? They, 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 they can't have a children. Now, listen, I've got friends who have the really dramatic stuff, you know, cancer healed, and legs grow, and... And, and I do the barren womb thing. You know, it's like, it's like what we do, you know. So, so I, I, I just want something a bit more dramatic, like a bit more masculine, you know, like, um, like arms grow or something. You know, I mean, I want something really dramatic. But anyway, so we pray for the two couples, and the one couple is still not pregnant. And I tell that story because I want to earth it in reality. There's no trick, there's no master plan, there's no, this is the way you pray, and then I write a book on it, and you can buy my DVD, a discount. Um, <laughs> but, but Jimmy and Sarah, 
became pregnant. Now, after I prayed for them, I turned to Phil and Merrill and I said, I, I think they had a boy, I believe. And I said, I think they're going to have a girl. I don't tell her that because I'm chicken, because <laughs> I was scared in case I was wrong. So, I, you know, you just get that pious look. I think they're going to have a little girl. So, anyway, they go for their first scan. I said confidentially, I think it's going to be a girl, and it's a boy. So Phil phones me, says, Sarah's pregnant. I'm like, yeah, this anointing of mine, it just feels so good, you know. And they said, well, actually, it's going to be a boy. <laughs> Three months later, second scan, it is a girl. Now, it's a fun story to tell, but there's a two-part application. One, I said to Tony, I really feel like some of you have grown so discouraged you embraced a journey of healing with such joy and celebration. But prayer after prayer seems to have stuttered and stumbled and fallen on empty ears, and healing hasn't happened. I don't know why. I know there have been times God's healed us aplenty, used us to pray for the sick, and there are times it just feels like sawdust. Our prayers do the same prayers, same moment, same E minor, different result. But I really felt as I was praying that God wants to encourage some of you who've grown discouraged, desperate, because God's used you before and there's no fruit recently. And I want to say to you tonight, give, open your hands when we pray. Just open your hands one more time and say, God, I'm still available. I'm discouraged, but I'm still available. You've used me in this way in the past and I'm still available. And then related to that, as a community, I was so stirred this morning by Tony praying with such passion and enthusiasm and faith for God to touch those who are sick. Let that Bunsen burner of faith burn bright. Let's see God touch, full of compassion and full of tenderness, those who with broken bodies are struggling to make sense of the life they're living in right now. This is an incredible story that draws out the scribe upon whom our faith rests, the cynic whom God is calling out to repent. It's the wonder of forgiveness that God wants to take your heart and make it soft again. And healing, when our hands are open and we say, God, would you use me one more time? This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and God bless.